Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, baby. Hello, Rebel, baby. Hello, baby. Today... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Brown Baby Podcast. I am your host, Nikesh Shukla. I am an author, a screenwriter, and I am also very easily impressed. This weekend I discovered a cocktail that comes with a scoop of lemon sorbet in the middle, and quite frankly, it's all I can think about. As we record this, I'm imagining the sweet and sour fuzzy cloud that it, the melting sorbet is forming with the delicious Prosecco. Hmm. Anyway... This is a podcast about parenting. It asks the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful in bleak times that make us so sad and angry? Each week I invite a parent on to chat to me about their parenting journeys, how they're navigating these tricky times with their kids, how to have important conversations and how to still have fun and enjoy the world. This is a hopeful podcast about parenting and it's inspired by my memoir brown baby a memoir of race family and home which has been out since september i hope you have your copy okay so this week's guest is the journalist and writer safraz manzur safraz is the author of the recently released book they what muslims and non-muslims get wrong about each other where he goes on a journey around Britain in search of the roots of this division, from the fear that Islam promotes violence to the suspicion that Muslims wish to live segregated lives to the belief that Islam is fundamentally misogynistic. Safraz is an, an amazing writer who wants to basically challenge these assumptions about Islam. They is also his search for a more positive future. We hear stories from Islamic history of a faith more tolerant and progressive than commonly assumed and stories of hope from across the country which might show how we can bridge the chasm of mutual mistrust. It's a remarkably hopeful book. Now, this Bruce Springsteen obsessed journalist is also the author of Greetings from Bury Park, his memoir about growing up in Luton and being obsessed with The Boss. He worked on the adaptation, which uh, which was called Blinded by the Light, which has just hit streamers. If you want a warm watch, a warm film to watch, rather a warm watch. What's a warm watch? A uh, watch that is... Oh, no, let's not go there. Hey, look, he was one of the first people to ever write about my work, and I respect him greatly. Even if during this conversation he questions the mantle he wears, I respect his work and what he has carved out and the space that he has made. We speak about our kids, about technology, about what musical instruments they shouldn't learn, how to have difficult conversations, whether the world is as bleak as I describe or a more hopeful place as he describes. 
and how anguished I am. It's an illuminating chat and one that has definitely made me see the world in a new light. I really enjoyed my time with Safraz. Um, so please, welcome to the podcast, Safraz Manzur. Welcome to the podcast, Safraz Manzur. How are you doing today? You've just come back from Latitude Festival. You look definitely like you are sick of tents. I don't know. I can't tell. How are you, how are you today? Can I tell you something really funny, actually? So I... Um... I'm not really a camping person myself, as in I've become into. I mean, I've become into two, two brown men who are not into camping. Tell me more. You know what I mean? But my <laughs> wife is hugely into that, and this is one of the many, many compromises that I've made. Um, but I went to Latitude on my own. How oh, did you? Which was kind of like, you know, it was kind of amazing, to be perfectly honest, because I didn't have to like take the kids to the kids' area the whole time. I could just enjoy myself. But it meant that I had to take a tent and learn how to put the tent up which i have not got a clue on so i spent quite a lot of time with my wife kind of showing me the way to do it in the garden and i was like i did it i sort of did it but i did it wrong then i did it again she's like all right you're fine you'll do it and i was like no you know like how that i think is in full metal jacket when that guy can can put a gun together but blindfold and i was like i want to be like that with the tent i want to just be able to do it so i got almost (laughs) to it then i got on friday night i get there and i'm on site and i lay out the first part of the sheet and i'm like okay right so two poles one cross one cross and these two guys come up to me and they say are you are you suffering man's i was like yeah and he goes i gotta say i absolutely loved blinded by the light mate i oh that was a great film and i was like look i'm really happy to talk to you but any chance you could put the tent up while we're chatting <laughs> <laughs> and they did so I oh my of, god i thought i regaled them with some anecdotes of the film shoot and they basically put the tent up Oh my god, this is this is a genius move. You're like, oh yeah, I did meet Springsteen, and this is the conversation we had. And oh, could you just uh, angle that a bit more? I don't think that's taught enough, actually. Exactly, and I was just now. I think there's, I think you meant to do some tying up of the two, the inner and the outer. Isn't there some sort of tying up thing? So anyway, so I get there and I'm backstage. It's like it was like that. So that was very very funny. But no, it was fantastic, and I was just like, it felt, you know, 15 months of really not. More, I thought my my wife on my birthday got me a um. One of the things she got me was a disco glitter ball. And it's in the living room. And the idea is, look, we can't dance. We can't go out anymore. But we can, you know, we can have a little dance in the living room. And you realise it's really not the same as being in a, in a room. or being in a, being in the living room is not the same as being with 40,000 people. And just having that kind of collective shared experience was kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, I... Um... I know what you mean, because last week, it's not the same thing, but bear with me. I went to see The Fast and Furious 9. I really wanted to go and see a big blockbuster, dumb action film that makes no sense, but kind of is aware of how stupid it is on a big screen in a dark room with more popcorn than I can handle. And I just spent the whole time like in the experience of going to the cinema rather than watching the film. And it made me realise that... Man, I've really ruined film by just watching it on my laptop for the last year. Yeah. Um, I've really missed. I've really missed the kind of the communal experience. The irony being, me and my mate were the only ones in the cinema. Oh god! But there was just something about the experience that made me. But there think, was something about. I think it's about exhilaration, isn't it? I think that's what I. Yeah. That's what I've kind of missed: euphoria and exhilaration and those sorts of things. 
there's um, there's also like a, a romantic routine around it as well i think going to a gig or going to a festival or going to the cinema or going to the th- like you you prepare yourself in lots of d- interesting ways right yeah and you know the other thing is and because like i don't drink so i spot spend a lot more time thinking when i'm around there in a kind of you know what does it all mean kind of way than i than maybe some some people do but when you go to something like latitude yes it's self-selecting yes it's middle class blah blah but it also, you sort of see a version of the country that feels quite positive. Yeah. You, know, you see people in their 70s who are looking ridiculous and they don't mind. You see teenagers. You see, it was really funny. I was right at the front of the Chemical Brothers and there were these young girls and we're just like chatting. And I was like, you look really young to be Chemical Brothers fans. And they were like, we're just holding the spots for our dads. They're going to join us in 10 minutes. <laughs> 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 I thought that's so cool that these guys are bringing their teenage kids and they're all enjoying something so you kind of emerge more positive about britain to be honest (laughs) saying yeah this is also britain these are the people for whom the euro final never actually happened hasn't happened yet they're still feeling hopeful about the country yeah it's about tribes isn't it you sort of feel like well this is my tribe in a way as well and i think when you're on your own for a long time and you you have that kind of atomized life that we've we've all had um you can sort of slightly lose your tribe yeah i just also really like the mental image of suffrasman's a front row of the chemical brothers pogoing to hey boy hey girl and thinking what does this all mean there was a little bit of that but luckily i didn't write an 800 word think piece up whilst i was there i was mostly pogoing but you know what i mean it's just like it's, it's the nearest because i don't do any kind of you know i don't go out i don't get out of my head on any kind of substances and i've never drunk or anything like that so this is at the nearest i get to to losing it you know to Mm. to being and that's that's kind of nice feeling to have yeah so so tell me what we're gonna well we'll talk we'll get on to talking about dad life in a bit but i just want to bring um readers up to date with uh with what what's been going on for you so obviously uh two three years ago blinded by the light came out the film adaptation Uh, of you no two years ago 2019 uh, the adaptation of your memoir, Greetings from Burry Park, and that was a lovely, really warm film with a great lead. I, ca- I can't remember his name, Vivek but that young Cowell, man. Yeah. yeah, he was great. And his best mate, the seat guy, was, was really, really funny. Um, and you've got your book, They, uh, which has just come out. Um, tell me about how the last few years have, have gone for you, because obviously it's been a while since Greetings from Burry Park came out, and yeah. obviously like getting that film done and out was felt like quite a long time in the making and then obviously you've been working on this steadily for like a chunk of the lot previous previous years just well i mean to be honest basically you know the book the first book came out in 2007 and this book's coming out 14 years later or something which is kind of nuts but what happened in that time was that i got married and had two kids and you know when i after what after that happened really my productivity just absolutely plunged and when it came to kind of doing anything big um i was always just like well i can't think of an idea that's so important that i can find the time in all my other commitments of you know parenthood and 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 journalism etc to squeeze this other thing and the film the reason it takes i mean you you know you'll know this as well these things take a long long time the funny thing mm. about a film is that it takes a long long time and then it happens ridiculously fast so mm. we started it in sort of 2010 or something um and then when we got the money it was 
it was being filmed within four months. So it actually goes slow and then really, really fast. But what the film did was, I guess it gave this was two things really. It was one was it it kind of gave me the chance to have a little bit of freedom to be able to focus on the things that I really wanted to do, you know. So mm. so since the film, I've just like, I do do journalism, but I only do it because I genuinely like doing stuff. So if somebody says, you've got a chance to meet X, I'll do it. But I really just thought, you know what, I'm only going to focus on bigger projects that take longer to do. And I've now got a little bit more of that kind of financial freedom to be able to just focus on bigger things and not worry about you know the weekly so that's the one thing it did and then the other thing it did was you know it's a really specific story about Luton and the 80s and yet it found like this international audience and so you mm. know obviously it went to America and Japan and all this and so I get these messages on Instagram and Twitter from Chile or Mexico or New Zealand or whatever people connecting and you realize the power of storytelling to try and tell very culturally specific stories can actually reach people and make a little bit of difference whilst they're being entertained. And actually, yeah. that was quite interesting because when I started writing They, I started thinking, right, I want to use what I've learned about storytelling, about screenwriting, about mm. how you can actually reach people to sell fairly uncomfortable things, but through storytelling rather than polemics and, and what have you. So that sort of actually helped feed into the writing of They. And can... So can I just so so the line that I just wanted to draw between those two works uh, between they and Blinded by the Light uh, m more than Greetings from Barry Park because Blinded by the Light I think is much more nostalgic about Luton in the eighties than perhaps the book is and uh, obviously writing about writing they you kind of you reckon with what Luton has become and what it's become like symbolic of in the conversation what well, the conversation around far-right extremism and islam and um, british muslims and so how, how did how did you kind of square those two things when you were kind of working on them i mean it might be helpful to sort of just like talk a little bit more broadly about why i wrote the book because in a way luton's not it's in it but it's not really in the new book it's in it occasionally you know yeah um so the trigger for the book really was like i said before i didn't have a book to write didn't have any reason to i don't didn't notice anyone clamoring for a second book from me so that there was nothing it was all pretty quiet um and then basically you know 2016 happened and you had manchester arena attack and i used to, i went to uni in manchester you had london bridge you had westminster bridge you had donald trump you had brexit you had joe cox being murdered you had the, story, the lingering story of Rochdale and Rotherham and all the kind of child sex, child sexual exploitation stuff, going, child sexual exploitation that goes on. And then the following year, in 2017, a guy only minutes from where I live tried to drive a van into Finsbury Park Mosque. And all of that stuff just really, really got me down because it just made me feel hopeless, to be honest, because I just started thinking, is this the Britain now? Is this is this the country that I have as my home? You know, and didn't feel like there was anywhere else I could go to. I had too many roots in this country and I've given a lot to it and it's given me a lot. But I just felt scared of the country it was becoming. And maybe scared is the wrong word, but I felt deeply apprehensive. And and I just started thinking, okay, well, is there anything within my modest skill set that I can do to, to make a difference? Do you know, like literally, what can I do? And I thought, well, 
what about trying to do something for my kids? Because my, you know, my kid, my daughter, my daughter now is just about to turn ten. My little boy's uh, four and three quarters, and they aren't absolutely fully yet aware of the toxicity around Islam and all that. But they're totally aware of skin color and they're totally aware of that stuff. And I had to walk my daughter a different route so she didn't see all the stuff of the police vans and everything around the Finsbury Park attack. And I was just like, I would really hate it if they grew up feeling really happy and comfortable with my wife's white Scottish heritage. But they felt like mine, my Pakistani Muslim background was problematic. That would really, really sadden me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book for them and I'm going to actively find the reasons to feel hopeful. And so I went out and thought, okay, well, if I was to meet an Islamophobe right now and I was to ask him or her, what do you think about Islam and what do you think Muslims are like? What would be the nine or ten things that this person would say? Like, what would a bigot say about Islam? And I thought they'd say, oh, they all want to live amongst themselves. They all marry each other. Their, their, their religion is violent. They, they look down on white people, they hate this country, they've got different values. And I literally just wrote them all down and I thought, okay, I'm going to tackle every single one of these things. But rather than doing it in a kind of polemic where I just like wang on and I just talk to my talk, talk as of declaiming these big statements, I'm going to go out and tell human stories about real people whose lives intersect with some of this stuff. And then Luton becomes part of that because, for example, the EDL come from Luton and the march where the British soldiers returned to Luton, that's what spawns the EDL, for example. So Luton becomes a character in it, but I travel around the whole country just meeting in loads and loads of people. And the idea was to try and tell a story. And I kind of, I guess the question I was asking myself is, is it naive to feel hopeful? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it, is it, do you have to be totally rose-tinted and naive to feel hopeful? Or can you have, can you be both clear-eyed and hopeful? And that's, that's the kind of journey I try to set myself up on. And my story and the story of Luton becomes a, a, you know, a splinter within that, but nowhere near as much as, as it was in Greetings from Barry Park and in Blighted by the Light. One of the, things I, I, one of the things I think is interesting about the two books that we've had out this year with my memoir, Brown Baby, and with your, with they, both of them are striving for a vision of hope. And because the, the central question that I'm asking at, at the heart of my my memoir is how do we raise our kids to be hopeful in a world that seems so fucking bleak and fucked? And I feel so sad and angry about it. Like, how do I then who am I in that interaction with my kids? And so, like, you know, you know, you said it was a modest skill set. I disagree because I am a, one of those highfalutin writers. I think that uh, a book can change the world. But um, it can. But, it's but, not but, mine. all mine but you know that like there is that thing of like us reaching to um future generations to kind of give them hope that i think is you know for me it's directly in conversation with james baldwin's but uh the 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 fire this time the fire next time sorry and um and even tanahasi coates is between the world and me because i think that in order to feel hopeful uh in order to feel hopeful about the future you kind of have to present what what now means and how uh, to, to kind of give you an example of this um so we we live in bristol about 20 minutes walk away from where the colston statue was pulled down and my daughter goes to a school that has a very uh a tangential association with colston and uh, so that you know that they involved the the teachers there involved the whole student body in a conversation around that association with colston and my daughter wanted to know more 
She wanted to know more about British Empire. She wanted to know more about slavery. She's six. And she asked me to tell her about the Bristol bus boycotts because we live not far from where those bu- those bus boycotts, where the community that um, galvanised around those bus boycotts all lived. And she, in order to explain the boycotts to her, I had to explain to her what racism was, which is interesting because I've never spoken to her about what racism is. I've only ever told her about, I've only ever tried to make her feel proud of her skin colour and her heritage and her background and all of those things. But I've never spoken to her about the negative side of that. And I realised that as I was trying to explain it to her, and she was she wasn't getting it. She just thought, "What did you this say?" Sounds... I said, "Well, I said to her in as simplistic way as I thought um, there are some people who treat other people differently and and quite negatively because they are a different skin colour to them, and that's not right, is it?" And she said, "But that doesn't make any sense. That I don't understand that. What like that's that feels stupid to me." And I found myself in that moment going. Oh, well, you know, maybe someone would be racist because... And then I stopped myself and I realised that what I was doing was I was trying to get her to see the world through my eyes. I was projecting my cynicism and my world weariness and my jadedness onto her when actually the thing that I needed to do was explain the world to her as she understands it, which is a much more generous act, I think. And and I, I definitely get that feel from reading They, that that is how you're trying to... You, you know, it, it feels like you're trying to have a very complex complex conversation with future generations by by you know not being cynical about the way things are i think that's a really yeah, really important that's really thing interesting. i mean i read your book and I'm, i heard i knew about your book but i didn't read it while i was writing mine because i worried that i might inadvertently believe some insights from you and pass them off as mine or something do you know what i mean and it was quite interesting because when i read it afterwards there were things which you know you you, had, you sort of transcribed or you mentioned conversations that your daughter had had about skin color and brownness and i was like that sounds really similar to what i was having conversations with um but the interesting thing about that though is it makes me think is um two things one is that thing that you just mentioned about not imposing that cynicism or the ugliness of how some you know, being cliched about it, the ugliness of how some grown-ups are onto their world, you know, mm. and I definitely think that's true. And there's a scene in the book where I talk about a, a school exchange scheme where in Luton actually happened where there was the Asian kids in one school and the white kids in another school and they all met together for the first time. And I I was talking to them and they had to do this thing where they uh, had to talk about what was different about them and what they had in common. And there's an Asian kid and a, and a white kid and I'm saying what do you think you've got that's different and they were like we support different football teams and I was like yeah is there anything else and they were like yeah you've got Adidas and I've got different kind of trainers and I was like are you kind of being, are you being willfully thick can't you see that you're Asian <laughs> and he's white you know it's kind of and the point was they didn't see that and afterwards yeah. I, that was you know a few years back and I really regret that because I thought that's me totally imposing a world onto them that they don't see but the interesting thing is and you know you're is during that whole 2016 and 17, I went to my kids and I lost myself in their world in a medicinal way. Mm. And it, what I made me, what it made me think is that world, like when my little boy goes to kindergarten and he's playing with his mates or with my daughter, that is as valid as any other existence in any other world. Mm. There isn't any necessarily, I don't believe there's necessarily a hierarchy where a particular sector of what's going on is more valid than other people's experiences. So I thought, you know what? When it became really ugly during the the Trump tweets and all the EDL marches and stuff, I would just lose myself and play with my kids, thinking mm. this too is also reality. 
yeah there's 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 a real simplicity in it as well because um i i've found i have found that being being the parent who wants to be empathetic and present in the way that perhaps my my own father wasn't you know t- tell me how you're feeling you know, i find that having that conversation face to face with my children it freaks them out a little bit to kind of have to suddenly you know tell me how they're feeling so they often just say that they're feeling happy at the moment whenever i ask them but the only way to really kind of gauge how they're feeling is to play with them because the way they detect, dictate the play that there's so much it's so close to the to where they where they're emotionally where they emotionally are that you end up going you end up discussing your dis, discussing your feelings or how things are going through through the direction of play which i think is really fascinating but the other thing i find really interesting you know that thing you said about talking to your daughter about racism and what have you because i i'm not entirely i guess that conversation needs to take place and i haven't had it but there's a bit of me that thinks that i've lived my life essentially knowing that the, the cards are stacked against me but living it as if they are is but living it as if it isn't you know so basically, you know that actually it's not a level playing field, but you've just got to act in the world as if it is. Because if you internalise the unlevel playing field, that will hamper you when other people are going to hamper you anyway. So there's that. So I, I'm sort of a little bit unsure about how much to bring in those kind of conversations because I'm like, you know what? That stuff's going to happen, but you should just walk through the world as if it isn't going to happen maybe. And maybe internalizing that awareness isn't always helpful. Can you can you talk a little bit about how that worked for you when you were growing up? Because I, I think I think for me, I I I have constantly moved through life as the underdog, but I think a lot of that is to do with how I was raised, right? And and I think that you know with and how my mum brought me up to see the world, and so that's just kind of your parents really were quite, from what i read your parents were educated activists and so they must have imbued you with a sense of certain things are possible yeah i think my mum had a very strong sense of injustice and my dad had a very strong sense of my dad was like the conservative dream like don't make a fuss work hard that was he that was him whereas my mum you know she grew up in she grew up in keithley at a time of like great unrest in Keithley and Bradford and Huddersfield and so that that was never too far away from how she felt about things and and I think so she had this very keen sense of injustice but also I think that sort of the way that manifested in how she raised us was very much the feeling of being the underdog you know which and I think perhaps like there is like some crossover between being the underdog and moving through life as if um as if you there isn't like the these sort of structural barriers like they both they both acknowledge their existence i guess they both have sort of different execution points yeah i mean it's interesting because i think the underdog thing is probably factually just true for a lot of people i mean it certainly was i don't i would that was not how i would frame it for myself but it definitely was i mean basically you know my, my dad worked in a Vauxhall car factory grew up in a very working class family no didn't know anybody there was no sense that you know the only books that i remember were um, Reader's Digest, so I, you know, get from jumble sales and stuff. So that this world that I'm currently in just was not in any way plausible. Mm. And the other part of that, which I sort of part of the reason why I wanted to write the first book, was 
I'm not actually all that special. It's like, you know, if you have, if you're touched by greatness, they can be like, you know what, it doesn't matter where you come from, the way you played that violin meant you would eventually end up in Carnegie Hall or whatever. I'm kind of okay. I'm basically B plus. That's all I am. So I was always struck by, well, how did I do it? And what does that, and I think it was basically, this, I kind of, you know, I was in Manchester during the 90s and it's a little bit of the Gallagher Brothers attitude, actually, which I kind of, basically, I don't think, that, we're the best fucking band in the world that was yeah, their attitude wasn't yeah. it yeah. but it's also not it's like don't think you're no you're you're uh that posh people or entitled people or connected people are better than you actually think you're better than them <clears throat> do you know what i mean because i always just well, think to have come from where i've come from and then get into the rooms that i'm in is a much more impressive journey than most of the people that i'm around so well, i'm i'm gonna blow your mind here now Mr. Safrasmans, and say this to your face: you being in those rooms is the reason I'm in those rooms now, because your visibility in those rooms, you open doors, whether actively or passively, you open doors. But your presence, your like the visibility of your presence, made people like me coming up behind you um, feel like those worlds, those rooms were possible, those worlds were possible, and so like. Sometimes you do need people to move through life in the way you do in order for the next generation to kind of look up to you and go, ah, And it blows look, my look. mind. You know, I, I talk to, I think you, you probably know, you know Nish Kumar, don't you? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know him very much at all, but I know him a little bit. I interviewed him once and he was talking about how when he was growing up, and he's like early to mid thirties, he never thought the idea of doing what he does was impossible because he had the goodness gracious me gang already doing it. Do you know what I mean? And I literally cannot imagine what it must be like to be a kid of colour, as the kids say, and think that it's possible to be on TV or it's possible to write a book or it's possible to do what, you know, what Riz Ahmed is doing or what you're doing or what Michelle Hussain is doing or what all these people are doing. Loads of, I, it's, I am so a product of my time in that way that I can't even imagine it. You know, it blows my mind that we have three, we have the Home Secretary, Health Secretary and Chancellor. And yes, I know they're not my political tribe, but the fact that they're all British Asians and nobody really talks about that is mental for somebody like myself that thought, when I was a kid, I used to sometimes imagine wanting to be a Hollywood star. And the only role I could imagine playing was like Zorro, because it would be a role that would be covered up in a mask. And so nobody would know that I was Asian. So even in my fantasies of fame, I could only imagine a version of fame where you were wearing a mask so nobody could see that you were brown. So mm. that journey that we've been on is insane, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't hold any great sort of, you know, so in terms of the way I lived my life, I, was, I lived my life by two ideas. One is if you're going to do something 40 or 50 years, 50, 40 or 50 hours a week, try and do something that's not going to just be absolutely mind numbing because that's what my dad did that's what everybody i grew up did and i was like is that really all there is to life and the second thing was you know don't put yourself down because there'll be plenty of others who are going to do that for you it's great advice it's it's really great advice um but the the the, the thing that i think is is quite interesting about all of this stuff around representational politics as it were is <clears throat> i think i think we sometimes well certainly now the conversations show me that we sp we spend so much time going oh well, 
it's nice to see someone who looks like me doing the thing that is being done because because there has been a dearth and you know for some people that dearth was um that dearth made them not do it and for other people that dearth made them go fuck it i'm going to do it because no one else is doing it but now what we've ended up with as as you mentioned is like three three for me very objectionable politicians who um are classic skin folk ain't always kin folk type of people and and it's made me and actually that conversation around them has made me think recently that maybe representation for representation's sake isn't the thing that i want anymore and you know i I don't you know like what you know ultimately i don't know where young people land on this because it's ultimately their decisions to make about how all this moves forward but um you kind of you kind of start to think well yeah, a diverse room is a progressive decision, but a diverse room doesn't necessarily guarantee a, a progressive room. And maybe the thing that I want is a progressive room rather than a diverse room. Yeah, I think that's all true. I think it's. Um, I think part of it is if you grow up and you feel that the world is possible, mm. then the next battles can start, can't they? So if there is an aspect where a kid growing up now, she or he or they thinks I can do X, Y, and Z, and the fact that I am of this particular background or ethnicity or colour will not stop me, that's an extraordinary Mm. achievement. But here's my thing, and this is, I think, where I'm a little bit different to a lot of the people who, you know, um, I kind of see there's nothing wrong with celebrating those things. Like, I feel like it's fine to talk about the journey ahead, but there's nothing wrong in saying that's bloody amazing that we've got to that point as well. Do you know what I mean? So I suppose my kind of, I think I'm slightly more chirpy and perky than you are about those sorts of things. <laughs> like, I just think that's amazing, you know. And like, I remember a couple of years ago when my daughter was five, I took her to see uh, Matilda, uh, the musical. And I was like, you know, and she was really into the songs and stuff. And I was feeling like quite down because I was thinking, you know, she might one day want to do this sort of work. Let's hope not. But if she ever did want to go into that sort of, <laughs> You know, act, act, act. but she could never aspire to play Matilda. You know, so then I opened the program, and actually, one of the four girls who was playing Matilda looked exactly like my daughter. Mm. And I was like, "Fair play, that's cool." So, mm. and the other thing that's quite interesting uh, is, you know, you talk about uh, Sajid Javid and uh, Priti Patel and and uh, Rishi Sunak. Why don't there? Why aren't there people on the progressive side? Like, where are they? I don't really know. Yeah, it is interesting. It is yeah. really interesting. I, I don't know. It. Like, that's the thing with my book. Is I'm the, really the closest we have is Keith Faz. <laughs> and that's not very close at all. <laughs> no. no, not really. Not unless you want to buy some, you know, washing machine or whatever from him. Or whatever. <laughs> but no, I mean, and the thing is, this is the thing, you see. It's like, I don't want, like, when I wrote the book, I was thinking, I don't want this to kind of, I want any... Uh, I want people to feel challenged and uncomfortable regardless of where they are politically. Like, it, it, this is not a kind of book only for liberals or only for conservatives. And I think too often people start books, and I find these books incredibly annoying and they, they do very well. And um, uh, I think there's a market for them, but I just find them annoying where people, where the person starts with an opinion and a con- on page one and then basically rams it for the next 240 pages. And you basically don't feel that they've gone on a journey or they've ever asked themselves any hard questions. Do you know what I mean? And so, well, yeah, this this is my big 
sorry to interrupt, no, but no. this is my most my uh, as a as a creative writing teacher, my biggest bugbear is writers who write from a position of knowing rather than a position of curiosity. I'm a curious writer, and I feel like. I think a lot of writers who start their lives on social media and then move to writing, they start from a position of, I'm doing air quotes for listeners, expertise. But actually, I'm, I only want to read curious writers. I want writers to not know what the fuck they're talking about. But the journey, you know, the journey is the, the meat of it, you know. It is exactly that. And also, the other thing is, I don't want <clears throat> books. I don't read them. Which are the two things I, I hate are books where they, it feels like the conclusion is basically you would have known the conclusion from the beginning and it's all been reverse engineered and there's no doubt there's a voice of God kind of aspect to the author where they just think that somehow everything they're saying has to be manifestly true. So my book mm. is riven with me challenging myself and doubt yeah. and I'm saying you know what maybe I was actually wrong about this or I kind of want to be optimistic about this but frankly let's be honest so far there hasn't been that much optimism you know so being honest about the fact that one is one's own character and uh, a character in the story and not thinking you know everything that's one thing I find really really annoying and the other thing I really find annoying are people where books which sort of tell tell you what you should be doing I find them quite hard work as well you know like manifesto kind of books because I personally don't necessarily know what gives that person the entitled sense that they can tell me what to think. I don't, I tried, I think my publishers wanted me to make this more of a manifesto. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to tell you stories. I'm going to tell you as much as I can. I'm going to give you my own insights, but I'm not actually telling you this is what segregation should be about or not. This, let yourself, you make your own minds up about these things. And I find that those kind of proclaiming declarative books are, I find them quite annoying too. Well, that's that's what that me too, and that's why I purposefully set each chapter of my book up as how to talk to you about this, and then come to a conclusion that I have no fucking idea, and that's the point. None of us do. So you are you're a dad of a ten year old, and she's four year old. She is going to be uh, yeah, she's ten, and he's going to be five in November. Tell me about the ten year old because. As my kid becomes more interested in externalizing her world, she's she's experimenting when we're out of the room with what button she can press on the remote control. She tries to unlock our phones all the time. You know, she's very curious about all of these things. She's six. Uh, she's she six, yeah. and she's reading books where you know kids are talking about things like Instagram and um, and so part of me is like I'm nervous for the next stage. Uh, and how how are you feeling about this stage? Well. So I mean I don't you don't mention your names your kids child your children's names in your in your book but I I do because they're um, I'm hoping eventually that they get um, modelling contracts and then they sort of look after me later with with that money so um, <laughs> uh, so so Layla's going to be is is ten and um, and Ezra's five and so Layla I mean the thing is that um, I can't really tell you what it's like I mean basically it's both a joy and a nightmare. You know, that's what it's like. That's what it's like. <laughs> you know, that it, great, it, and some, great, yay. You know, and sometimes the joy just about, you know, makes the nightmare tolerable. That's how it is, really. Um, what's really interesting is when you see this person and you see their sensibility, and it's, you know, you think this is actually. I think it was very funny. Actually, it was one of my. It was her birthday recently, and. Uh, um, one of our friends, one of my wife's friends took my daughter, who's 10, for afternoon tea. 
and she came back and she said it was like hanging out with a mate and I thought that's quite cool now that my daughter can actually like she's she's properly into all that so in terms of that technology stuff my daughter goes to a Steiner school so mm. you know that's a really quite a sort of a hippie-ish kind of vibe where basically they strongly don't encourage screens for a long time so she didn't watch you know, she watched like TV like once every three weeks until the age of, I don't know, six, six or seven or something. So she didn't grow up with that all around her. She's now just obsessed with books. So she just reads a hell of a lot. Um, the things that I am finding difficult, I'm interested to see what you, you think about this, is I am finding it very hard to know how to get her to do anything. Because I grew up with a value system where basically I didn't challenge my parents at all. So, so there, there was just no, there was no world view in which I wouldn't do what they told me. They never hit mm. me, but they didn't need to. There was just, it was this implied deference. Now, my children have absolutely no deference to me. I obviously can't hit them, but I don't have anything else I can do either. And so what I'm finding now is my daughter says, well, I'm not going to do something and you actually can't make me. And I'm realizing that this is quite a difficult position on the chessboard I've got myself into. Because it's like, what do you do if somebody says, I'm not going to get dressed and I'm not going to go to school? What moral authority do you have? And this is a challenge which, you know, my parents never had and which we are wrestling with. So those, so those kind of things are tricky. And there's also that thing about testing boundaries, you know. Um, like, here's a good question. It's like, she's 10 and she wants to go out to the shops to buy something. Do you let her? Mm. I'm nervous. I'm like... We're living in London. Obviously, there are psychopaths on the street, most likely within 50 yards. Yet, but my wife's idea is, you know, you have to trust your children and blah, blah, blah on all that. So those are the sorts of tension points that we're kind of facing at the moment. It's that that sort of purgatory between complete dependence and complete independence, I guess. The only um, thing I can relieve, I can, I can be pleased about is it hasn't got to the stage where she's going to be taking, she hasn't yet started taking, you know, transport on her own and things. That stuff terrifies me, I have to be honest. Yeah. God, yeah. So to, to go back to the thing that you were saying before, because uh, it just because it's something that I, I wrote about in Brett Brown Baby, this idea of the infallible parent mm. um, is something that obviously you you and i probably grew up with you know the parents that you don't question the parents the parents who like put you to work you know put me to yeah. work around the house like if i wasn't going to help my dad in the warehouse on weekends i was looking after my cousins you know and um and in order to be the opposite of that in order to be the super present father who is invested in my child's world and you know giving her choice and and all the rest of it that choice does does mean that when you when you have to be the adult in the situation, it becomes harder to convince them that you are that there is a hierarchical structure in place. Well, I was talking to Ezra the other day, and I asked him to do something, and he just said, "You think you're so cool, don't you?" <laughs> what? Who came up? How did you come up with that? You know. But, but here's the thing, though. Do you think you know that thing about the chores and things, which you know I grew up doing? I think those are really good things. You know, I don't think that's a bad thing to have to, to know that you should be doing things. You should be expected to do things. You shouldn't have to be begged. They shouldn't have to be begged to do them. You shouldn't have to be bribed to do them. It should just be part of the understanding that there are jobs to be done. I am saying this as a theoretical concept, but I've not been able to apply this whatsoever. Yeah, I think the the tension in our house is I suggested 
like using pocket money as an incentive and the dissenting opinion was and i think it's probably the correct one no there are certain things that are just what you do to make the household run as part of the family yeah that is, and, that's a big that's a that, those there are very much two schools of opinion on that aren't there yeah and, and i i definitely think you know what once my wife said it, i was like yeah you know you're you're right about that you know we shouldn't like because like, i didn't get pocket money so it's even that is like a weird con- concept for me like uh, the earliest moment i could i got a job yeah um but I also Did, think, I have to say, the other thing that's quite interesting is that for a long time, I did think that, you know, I don't want to overdo it, but, you know, like wanting to be around for my kids and, and, and because I work from home, it means I'm not like, you know, I'm around much more anyway and et cetera, et cetera. It did mean that my productivity was slumped and I did feel like, well, maybe, but actually, in a way, they have, you know, it's it's, I feel, what I really feel good about with that is you feel like it's so nice to feel like you, you've got toppings on all all part all slices of the pizza do you know what i mean mm. so i kind of like i don't even think about writers or anyone else now who don't have kids and think of them as in my world because it's like i don't know what that must be like now i genuinely have no idea what it must be like to have no kids and to be doing what you know because yes it'd be amazing because you could just start in the morning with an idea and just work at it but why <laughs> I just there seems like a kind of a pointlessness to it, and it's like, so I went to Latitude, and it was brilliant, but then it was so nice to actually come back to the world of my family as well, and so mm. it, it's given me a lot, even though psychologically, obviously, it's challenging as well. So it's kind of like it, it, you don't realize what it gives you unless you start imagining what it must be like not to have that. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's fun. It's funny because I think those writer friends of mine who don't have kids get lost get lost in their own um their own sort of creative workflow whereas i'm like i've got 45 minutes dude i've got to get these fucking pages done otherwise it's not happening you know um, it's very funny actually i had to interview um someone the other day and uh, she's a, a tv actress and uh, the uh, she'd done a drama and i had to watch two hour drama to, for the interview and the interview was meant to be for half an hour and the pr cut it to 15 minutes as the interview started and I was like, I'm not having this. I rang her back and just gave her like a massive volleying. I said, if I had known this interview was going to be 15 minutes, do you think I'd have wasted two hours getting up at six o'clock to watch this drama when I've got two kids and I've got better things to be doing with my time? Do you know what I mean? It's like your time becomes more precious. And the idea of yeah. spending two hours researching something for a 15 minute interview wouldn't have happened, you know? So I think it gives you a more, you know, as you say, it, gives, it becomes clarifying as to, well, things have to have a purpose or a point and you can't just meander over every semicolon. Do you know what mm. I mean? So even like with this book, it's, you know, I, I just sort of think I did the best I could. I wrote, I wrote pretty much all of it during lockdown in this room while my kids were downstairs a lot of the time with my wife. And, you know, it's like you have to, in a way, you have to know that there are these, it's like these are the limits of what you can do and you just do the best you can within those limits. And I think mm. if you don't have those limits of time or kids or whatever, then, as you say, you maybe you lose yourself because there's always tomorrow or there's always mm. another time when you could just keep working at it. So here's a question for you, uh, probably, probably more of an esoteric question about fatherhood. But can you remember a moment where you thought, I get, I get what fatherhood is? Um, if you if you if you've had that moment yet, you may not have done. I certainly I get what fatherhood is. Yeah, I've had moments of like deep joy 
and pride and emotional connection. Mm. But, I mean, I'll tell you what I did get. I remember when I, um, I remember the week immediately after my daughter was born, I remember having, I got home and I just had this massive panic. And I don't know if you ever had anything like this, where I just suddenly thought, oh my God, I've walked through the first door that I cannot walk back out of. Like, oh, wow. you know, like, you know what, when you marry someone, if it really <clears throat> goes to pot, you can leave them, right? If, if you have a job you hate, you can leave it. Once you have a child, you can't leave that child. Even, you can technically leave them, but you can't really leave them, you know? And I thought, oh my God, I am never, ever going to be able to have the world that was outside of this room again, because that world has gone forever. Mm. And I suddenly really wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, now my entire life will be defined and shaped by this little human being. Mm. And I just had this absolute terror and fear and nervousness because it was the first time that I'd made a decision which I could not renounce. Yeah, um, God. That lasted, you know, it lasted a bit. Um, but, so that was the, that was one moment. But like, you know, the, the moments, there are other ones when you just think you were father. I suppose it's when you feel like, well, my daughter, for my birthday card, wrote me a list of things that she remembered about me or memories and things like that. And one of them she said is, I really loved when I was playing online chess with my friend and I played against a avatar and it was a particularly high one. And I really wanted to beat this avatar because you hadn't beat him and I wanted to make you proud. Oh, that's lovely. And I was like, that's not because of me. She was, that was a conversation she was having with herself that she wanted to do that. Oh, that so those moments are really nice. And the other moments I love, this is slightly lighter, is I just love when I'll be in a car and we have one of those sort of, you know, those you can play the phone music from your phone and it streams onto the speaker. And I'll be like, so Leila, you can choose any song you want. And she'll be like, can we have Hungry Heart? <laughs> and I'm like, it's amazing that out of your own free will, you are choosing Springsteen. So it's just like, so those moments, I just feel like, you know, we've got a little connection here and that's quite cool. So, um, so yeah, so there are moments like that. But in terms of what fatherhood is, do you ever really know? You know, I mean, that's the big thing, isn't it? That <clears throat> the difference between our parents and us is that we, you don't, you assume this absolute confidence your parents knew what they were doing, but now you realise they were all making it up as they were going along, you know? And especially for and my generation of these people, I don't know if yours was like this. Did your parents meet here? Yeah, yeah. Because my dad came and my mum, he left my mum in Pakistan for 11 years. And then my mum came after 11 years with, with my brother and my sister and me. And you think, my God, this guy left his wife for 10 years from 30 to 40 and lived basically as a single guy. And then he suddenly gets presented with three kids. Of course he's not going to have a clue about what being a dad is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. it's, a, it's a heck of a journey. It's a heck of a difference in terms of the journeys, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I, but I, I do think that, the, you know, with, with this sort of, ge this generation of, of kids, who, you know, coming from having the type of parenting we both have and the similarities of those, I really like that I can have open and honest conversations with my kids where I get where I, I get to admit to being vulnerable or having made a mistake or not being entirely happy with the way certain things have panned out. 
And that vulnerability is something I just never got with my dad. I never saw my dad as vulnerable. I never saw him as weak or sad or, um, you know, he, he never he never oscillated between sadness and joy. He He just was stoic working man. And I think you know, that's had had some sort of impact on how I view work and how I view my attitude towards work. But at the same time, I really, I wish I, you know, my, when my mum died is when my father became, allowed allowed people to see that he was a vulnerable human being. And I, I wish I'd experienced that as a teenager. I think that's all true. And I think that's important. I think there's a danger there as well, which is, I think that one also, like, you know, I guess you have to remember that they are the stars of their own movie. Mm. And let that you know let that shine but also i think there's a, you don't want to be too I, I sometimes worry with you and i obviously don't know you but just in terms of your read your writing and what you something i sometimes wonder whether there's too much of a level of anguish and over worrying which can then maybe infect your parenting yeah i i think that's just me but that can have consequences can't yeah it? Yeah, of course it can, yeah. So I just worry, because sometimes being... I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't know, but I sometimes think you can overthink and over-worry and over-focus on the ugliness, whereas actually you don't want to, dis- you know, you don't want to distort too much the lens that you're looking at things through, because there's a danger that that then affects, and that becomes a lens that others look through. Yeah, which I, which I think is why why that moment where I was talking to my daughter about racism etc that was a really telling moment for me because i think it's just that reminder of you dictate for a long time how they see the world and you yeah that that comes it comes you know for your springsteen is my spider-man with great power comes great responsibility right yeah but also lightness i guess i'm talking about lightness so for example i'll give you an example of a story which could be anguished and it could not I was on a bus with my daughter, and she was only little. She was literally only about two, maybe three. And somebody goes to her, so where were you born? To my daughter. I'm a complete stranger. Obviously just, like, noticed her colour skin, skin of skin colour. And my daughter just looked at her and said, in a hospital, of course. <laughs> and I was like, well, that is as valid an answer. And I'm not now going to do a little symposium explaining the reason why that woman said it. I'm just going to say, what a stupid question that woman asked. Of course you were born in a hospital. I mean, it's only a little thing, but I suppose what I'm saying is I sometimes like to, sometimes my wife complains about this. I just sometimes just, un, it's, it's not bad. It's not always a bad idea to sometimes undercut the, the, the ugliness of the world with some of the wit and the joy as well. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I, I often complain that, like, the the anguish about, um, you know, the first half of my career, I came into the writing world as a comedy writer. I was a sitcom writer and I wrote co- comedic fiction and then The Good Immigrant happens and then suddenly you then have have another path to kind of go down. Well, which... you know, you remind me of the character in Stardust Memories in Woody Allen, you know, where he says, I preferred your earlier funny movies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um so do you think that's valid what I'm saying? Maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. I, th- I think I think you're I think you're right. Like finding the joy is definitely something that I'm thinking because about. Because one of the lot. things you asked me uh, to think about was what was it like? How do you raise children? Well, in the world? this this is the question. I'm, it's yeah. the question I, I end all the podcasts yeah. with, which I'm just about to ask you. Like, for from from where you sit with with your kids, how how do you, what are your strategies for raising your kids to be joyful and boundless? 
in a world that sometimes feels very heavy that Use you may... Use the bleak in the email you sent me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't think the world is bleak. I don't... I deny the validity of the question in that. I just genuinely don't think the world is bleak and, and heavy. I think there are times when it can feel <clears> overwhelming. <throat> God, of course it can. And there are times and there are people who can make you feel like that. But, you know, I start the book with a quote from um, Fred Rogers. Mm. You know? And I remember, basically, I was, it was the, um, I think it was either the Westminster Bridge attack or the London Bridge attack. And I was feeling that the world was bleak and heavy at that time. And somebody tweeted this and said, there was a quote from Fred Rogers, the American uh, children's presenter. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And that is the answer to your question, actually, that wherever there is bleakness, there will be somebody who's helping. I'm lucky I'm married to somebody who's like that, you know, and that is what I aspire to in my own life, mm. in my own little way, you know. So for every person who says something vicious, there will be somebody else who will have done something kind. There'll be more people who will have done something kind. And mm. I think it's social media because you spend a lot of time on twitter and i don't need to sort of eventually sort of step away again because it becomes too overwhelming or whatever but all of that world is just it's amplified outrage but i don't think it's the real world i genuinely don't think it's the real world and so i think to just bathe yourself in the reassurance that there is also kindness and joy and beauty and good people is how you stop yourself being overwhelmed by the bleakness and that is partly you know, by amplifying those stories. So mm. that's partly what I try and do in the book, just tell the stories of people who, who, who contradict that narrative. And then the second part is be one of those people. Be one of those helpers. I'm not saying you're not, but I think that's how you do it. Because then you can say, well, you know what? We all have some capacity to move the dial. It isn't just up to the politicians. It's not just about policies. It's also people. And in every decision we make, we can move the dial towards kindness, empathy, joy, progressiveness, positivity, whatever you want to call it. And then it becomes incumbent on us to play our part in whatever way we can. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. I love that answer. I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny because like, you know, obviously I wrote this book last year when I was, when the world was a different place and I was a different person. And, um, in April, I actually stepped away from social media and from a lot of other things to return to youth work, which is what I spent a lot of my 30s doing. And it gave me a lot of joy and also made me feel like I was doing something right in the world. And so like that idea of the helpers, I really love that quote. Thank you. Okay, so the final question uh, before I let you get back to uh, playing that guitar that's behind you uh, and uh, working um, is for ornamental purposes. <laughs> no, um what is the best advice you've received as a parent and what's the most useless advice you've ever received as a parent as a parent okay yeah i thought it was just best advice and useless advice okay so the best advice um well can i give you my this is not what you've asked but i'll just give you the other best advice generally as well because it's a really good bit of advice somebody once said to me and I, they gave it was a quote and they said it was from edgar o'brien but it might not have been but it was the secret to happiness is how is to turn your curses into blessings and I've nice. always lived, I think that's a really, really lovely, so I look at that a lot. In terms of parenting, the best advice that I've had and the worst advice, okay. Well, I would say that the best advice I've had would probably be, we will, this is quite small, but I think it's very important. Don't get your kids used to sleeping in your bed. Mm. 
That's a really important one. Because if you do that, they'll never leave. Yeah. So that was something which we, we were like, you know what? This kid, you know, after, after six months, eight months, you got your own place. Just, you know. So because I think that was like a, for me, I think the most important thing, and this is actually, go, no, actually I'll re- this is part of a bigger thing, which is don't forget that you are a married couple or a couple and you are human beings who actually loved each other, the parents, and you are all p- your people who have your own thoughts and your own needs and your own time and don't become so overwhelmed with being the perfect mm. and present parents that you forget to give yourself time. I think that's incredibly important. You know? Yeah, I love I love that. So whether it's about having date nights, whether it's about saying, you know, it's about not I, I, I always resisted the idea that all we are is parents after we've had kids. We're not. And I think mm. you can lose yourself and you can lose the relationship with your significant other if you share only parenting but you don't share in much other things so like when me and my wife are in the, in the house we're often you know bickering and arguing about real world problems to do with kids and whatever and then we'll go for a dinner we'll go for dinner in a restaurant and she'll like dress up for it and i'll be like god that's the person i dated that's mm. the person whose conversation is not now about what we're going to do about x and y it's actually just having a lovely time with somebody who i really love but sometimes you need to allow that time separate. So I, that's that's what I'd say would be the best advice. Um, the worst advice, um, I think, what was, I don't know. I don't really listen to that much advice from people about those sorts of, I don't know. I suppose the worst advice I've ever been given is actually the advice from my, from my I think it was probably from my dad, which was this idea of um, do everything now work hard and it all and basically live the good life in retirement oh no (laughs) and that is the culture that i grew up in Mm. which was basically all the happiness will come afterwards you know Mm. and then my dad dropped dead at 62 so that was like really bad advice for me Mm. that's something which i sort of hold on to um and in terms of childhood and parent uh, in terms of the best worst advice about parent about childhood and stuff i don't really know i think i i think I, me and my me and my wife argue a lot about you know whether we should allow children to sort of let me just correct let me let me go back on this because I'm trying to think of I can't really think of anything really bad as advice but I suppose the worst advice I got actually was from somebody who gave my daughter a saxophone and said yeah you should you should learn playing this <laughs> Oh, and God. the saxophone is right behind us in the eaves and it is never going to be picked up. So uh, so I think choosing the right musical instrument for your for your daughter or your son is a really important piece of advice as well. Something, something that they can plug headphones into, I think. Exactly. <laughs> so, Menzo, thank you so much. That was great talking to you. Um, thanks i'm I'm glad to i'm glad to get a chance to finally connect with you thank you so much for listening thank you to safraz for his time and to rosie from his publisher wildfire for making the time for this when the various covid pings meant i had to cancel our first recording at the last minute thank you to my publisher bluebird for supporting me through the podcast thank you to acast as well they what muslims and non-muslims get wrong about each other by safraz manzur is out now i have put a link to it in my affiliate shop on bookshop.org where you can buy the book and mine um there is also a list of all of the books by previous guests please do help keep this podcast free support it through social media uh 
sent me some change uh, through the ACAST supporter function and through buying the books. Thank you so much. See you next week where I'll be talking to the legend that is Andy Oliver. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, my brown babies. Goodbye, my brown babies. 